spirituality involves a dethroning of the ego. Now, in the New Age, they talk about killing off the ego. Now, I'm not a very big fan of that at all. I think if you kill off the ego, ten others emerge in its place, you know. The ego is, as Jung would say, is archetypal. You can't kill it off, but you can perhaps relativize it. I think that's the word I would use. Jung um, uh, talks about dethroning the ego. That's the word he uses. So instead of being on the throne, it's actually you know, serving. Jung, I think, invented that famous phrase, the ego makes a lousy master but a wonderful servant. You know, and that's become popular in my country. I'm not sure about here because I don't come here often enough. But I feel that um, to enter into the spiritual does require a rite of passage of kind, of a sort. Um, I was very, very influenced as a, as a child by an encounter I had with uh, an Aboriginal elder called Warren. And I, this is what happens in the deserts of, South, of, 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 um, of Australia, is that you sometimes meet people that you've never met before and they come up and say these extraordinarily profound things to you. It's just the way they live. It's, it's what Americans would call a shamanic culture. Now, we don't use that word shamanic in Australia, but um, Aboriginals refer to themselves as living according to sacred law rather than shamanic. And one of the key elements of sacred law is that the ego has to be symbolically put to death before the spirit can be fully released. Well, we have this in Christianity. If you think about the fourth gospel, where Nicodemus is in the dark of night, presumably by that stage Jesus has become a suspect figure, and Nicodemus doesn't want to be exposed or become seen as a, some sort of associate of Jesus. He says, Lord, tell me, you know, Jesus, tell me, uh, what is the key to spiritual life? And of course, Jesus says, well, you must be born again. Uh, kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, who's the neoliteralist, says, what? How can I a mother's womb and be born again? How can I as an adult? And Jesus starts to sort of almost scorn him at that point and says, what? Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know the... Uh, by Nicodemus. Now, according to some scholars I've read recently, that actually happened. It's not historical. It's allegorical or theological. I think a lot of the fourth gospel is written like that, actually. It's, it doesn't even really pretend to be historically accurate, which is why it's so dissimilar from the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But even if it didn't happen historically, it's still important it shows you how important spiritual rebirth is to any death. In Aboriginal cultures, um, by the time they turned um, 12 or 13, uh, very similar to the Jewish bar mitzvah, or bat mitzvah for girls, young women, uh, they were circumcised and they were put through various rituals and they were symbolically put to death 
Uh, they were often buried in a shallow grave and, um, and starved of, of, of food and uh, water was... There were scarifications across the chest. They were, as you can see there, painted white, which death, which is why when the British first arrived, these ancestral ghosts arriving off ships that, of course, never seen people on ships, never seen white people before, to be the dead returning. Degree of awe in Aboriginal people, and that's why when Captain Cook, James Cook, first met them in Botany Bay, it wasn't a hostile reception at all. They were they were welcoming of the British uh, until discovered that the British wanted to claim the whole continent of Australia uh, for the Crown of England, and hostile. But at the start, they had nothing but reverence and awe uh, because of the the, the colour white. So anyway, in the rites of passage, you emerge uh, from this period or the trials of initiation. You're given a new name, you're given the mysteries of the tribe, and then at the end you become an adult, as it were. As an Aboriginal elder said to me recently, you people in your white culture, adolescence seems to go on forever. It starts at 10 and ends at about 35. A lot of people, or, or even people in the 50s, can still be psychologically adolescent. He said for us adolescence lasts between five and eight days. Uh, you go into the initiation process as a child, you have your rites of passage, your separation from your tribe, the, 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 the liminal period of transition, your re-immersion into society at the end, and at the end of that period you emerge as an adult. And he said, we can't afford to have this expensively long period of adolescence because people who are adolescents don't know who they are. And as nomadic tribes, we can't afford to carry all that you have to be either a child or an adult. So this is very important, I think, in view of um, the ecological awareness that I think is emerging, that some, something has to die in for something else to be born. Now I put this one up there. This is Sinonophus destroying the sacred oak because it was pagan. So Christianity has, as you know, an ongoing struggle with paganism, an ongoing struggle with nature worship, which it saw as uh, very, very uh, um, uh, dangerous, because you could see him waving the cross at those people there and cutting the oak tree. So it's very be interested to engage in some, some discussion with some of you later. Where's my my timepiece? I hope I'll leave plenty of time about. Many Christians are now trying to sort of, in a sense, reinvent themselves as greenies. And you see, this is the history that we have to contend with. We've been spending hundreds and hundreds of years fighting off who've revered nature and revered the natural world. And it's very, very hard, I think, to some suddenly turn around and pretend that our tradition is green. Um, Teilhard de Chardin saying, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Uh, uh, an expression which is really taken off, actually, in the, in the popular world. 
This is a friend of mine, Professor Norman Harbell. He's a very, very interesting man. He's a Lutheran, and he's become one of the world's leading exponents of this new area called eco-theology. And he, you know, just as some... Um, uh, Al Gore did that wonderful program called An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, Norm Harbell wrote a book called An Inconvenient Text about the Bible. Is the Bible green? He's like me, actually. Norm Harbell has a very similar relationship to Christianity that I do. That is, like me, he's, he's fundamentally Christian, deeply respectful, but has a critical relationship to it at the same time. I don't think that uh, as it currently stands in its traditional forms, Christianity can easily be reconciled with uh, things green. And if we do that, it can be very, very superficial. Um, you can see there that uh, at the bottom there, this is a talk he gave in Darwin. We were talking about Darwin a minute ago, um, which is the top end of the And he says this, in Christianity, earth and nature are slightly unreal, not important. Humanity lives on earth, but in St. Paul's phrase, our real citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await saviour from there. So theologian Norm Harbell writes, numerous scholars in recent writings have sought to demonstrate the green credentials of God as creator. Few, however, have sought to face the fact that the portraits of God, especially in the Old Testament, are often grey rather than green. And I said, Norm, are there 50 shades of grey? And he, and he said, very funny. Um, so that's, that's a section from the inconvenient text. So I'm all for revising Christianity, not throwing it out the way it's so popular for so many people today, chuck it out. We've got to revise it, renew it, and bring it up to date. And the, 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 the Jews have a wonderful tradition called Midrash, which is about making new the old traditions. I'm having discussions at the moment with uh, Rabbis David and Helen Freeman, who run the West London uh, Synagogue. They're very interested in this process of midrash. And I think we don't have a similar term in Christianity. Um, but in Judaism, midrash means to revise and bring the tradition up to date. These are three people, all, each of whom I have personally met, who came into trouble with the Catholic Church because they clashed with what Norm Harbell calls heavenism. You know, that, that you remember that first uh, uh, when heaven is way up there and the universe is down here? The first, the one on the bottom left, of course, is John O'Donoghue. Have any of you read his stuff? Wonderful. Was a Catholic priest, was pushed out and said he was a pagan and an animist um, and a creationist. And then eventually, of course, he became one of the world's great writers in spirituality. John O'Donoghue is most important book being Anamkara, which literally means soul friend in, uh, in, uh, in Irish Gaelic. The top right-hand corner is a dear friend of mine, Paul Collins, uh, a member of the Order of the Sacred Heart, the Sacre Coeur. And down below, of course, is uh, a very notorious and, and, and controversial Matthew Fox, who faced a similar fate. And all three of them got turfed out of the, um, of the Catholic Church for their animistic views. So, in other words, what I, I'm wanting to present tonight is not just that this is an easy thing for those, those of us in the Catholic Church, it's a difficult thing to do, to bring 
ecological consciousness to bear in a tradition which has emphasized the transcendental above the immanental, immanental sense of the divine. And these are, uh, I've I said recently, I'm in danger of sanctifying these three figures, you know, as martyrs to the cause. But to me, they are, each of them, great Catholic, each of them priests, were Catholic priests who, who were thrown out because of the charge of animism. So, here we come back to Thomas Berry, who wasn't thrown out. Um, he says, if God is speaking to us through the universe, and if we are now seeing that the universe functions differently from what earlier Christians thought, then we must have a different way of articulating our Christian belief. And this is the revisionist uh, attitude to theology that I think is so very important. That book was on sale, wasn't it, at the back? The Dream of the Earth? I think I saw it on your table. I personally think this is the most important book in this entire field, The Dream of the Earth. And I read it and reread it over again. It is a very, very inspired work. So mysticism so often comes to our aid, I think. God is not only the father of all good things. This is Meister Eckhart talking from the late medieval period. But he is the mother of all things as well. Now, I emphasize this because why? Most of the religions that emphasize the sanctity of nature have the mother not the father as their central deity. For instance, in Aboriginal cultures that have so influenced me, the, the main deity is always the Earth Mother. Um, in the region I grew up in Central Australia, her name is Kunapipi. And of course, some of the old priests who first met these Aboriginal people regarded them as Satan worshippers and all the rest of it. And it was such a sad case of a cultural clash. John Paul II came to Alice Springs in 1987 to deliver not so much an apology, but a sort of a, an invitation, I think, for people from indigenous cultures to begin a conversation with Christianity about the nature of the divine. And it was a very, very interesting and very hopeful exchange, except some Aboriginal people said to me later that this was too little, too late for them because they'd been told all their lives that their religious lives were satanic and therefore and they had to convert and become like Western Europeans because God was an Englishman. You know? And they said it was too late to, to, uh, for them that for those people who were open to it, such an invitation was interesting. So Meister Eckhart says, he is the mother of all things as well. When creatures have acquired their being from him, he still stays with creatures to keep them in being. This is so close to indigenous cultures. If God did not remain with creatures after they had started their own life, they would most speedily fall out of being. That's from a, a wonderful book called Meister Eckhart, from whom God hid nothing. In one of his essays, D.H. Lawrence wrote, the universe is dead for us, and how is it to come to life again? Knowledge has killed the sun, making it a ball of gas with spots. Knowledge has killed the moon, its dead little earth, pitted with extinct craters as with smallpox. The machine has killed the earth for us, making it a surface that you can travel over. How out of all of this are we to get back the grand orbs of the soul's heavens 
that fill us with unspeakable joy. How are we to get back Apollo and Attis, Demeter, Persephone, or as they say in Greek, Persephone, and the halls of Dis? We've got to get them back, for they are the world our soul, our greater consciousness lives in. That's written in his essay called Apropos of Lady Chatterley's Lover, right back in 1929. And you can see in D.H. Lawrence, right back in the 20s, that need for an ecological consciousness. In the same essay, he said, vitally the human race is dying. It's like a great uprooted tree with its roots in the air. We must plant ourselves again in the universe. It means a return to ancient forms, but we shall have to create these forms again. And it is more difficult than the preaching of an evangelist. I think that is so very true. So where can the West turn? Find something similar to what Aboriginal people called Didiri, which is a talk I gave at Westminster Cathedral on Tuesday night. Uh, we have to go right back. Um, as I think I said to you earlier, on my mother's side, uh, my ancestry is Irish, on my father's from England, but not too many generations before that, actually France. My name, Casey, is actually a French. It's pronounced Hayes. But um, so I get French Catholicism and Irish Catholicism, two doses of Catholicism. It's um, Celtic spirituality is a resource for me. It speaks of thin places. I love that idea of thin places, which I had to find that first in John O'Donoghue's work in Anamkara, where the veils between the material and spiritual are transparent, not opaque. So Thomas Berry says in Dream of, uh, Dream of the Earth, we must go far beyond contemporary culture to find a solution. None of our existing cultures can deal with this situation out of its own resources. We must invent or reinvent a sustainable human culture by descent into our pre-rational, our instinctive resources. Again, you could translate this into Ian McGilchrist's language and talk about hemispheres. Our cultural resources have lost their integrity. They cannot be trusted. What is needed is not transcendence, but incendence. Now, I like that word, but I don't think it's going to take on somehow. You know. <laughs> Incendence. In other words, this is, incendence is the kind of transcendence you have when you're looking at the world through the eyes of panentheism that I talked about before the break. The divine in the imminent. And of course, our concern, or my concern, in talking to more traditional Catholics than myself, is to try to rest assured that this doesn't imply that there's no transcendent dimension to the divine but there is an incendent dimension at the same time. I find Lawrence uncannily prophetic. He said, God knows it looks like a cul-de-sac now, but we've struggled on and on we must still go. We may have to smash things, then let us smash. And our road may have to take a great swerve. It seems a retrogression. We must, as I say, make a great swerve in our onward-going life course to gather up again the savage mysteries. Well, we wouldn't use that language anymore, would we? I'd hardly say to my Aboriginal friends that they are savages. But that's what Lawrence said back in the 20s. But this does not mean going back on ourselves. We can't go back. So um, Lawrence came up with the idea that civilization has to engage in a kind of a spiralic 
we, it looks like we're going back if you look at it from above, but if you look at it from the side, it's actually moving above. It's an evolutionary spiral. Do you get the image? I should have an overhead. Sorry, I just couldn't find one on the internet. So if you look at it down, it looks like a regression. But if you look at it from the side, it's actually a progression. Hence, I use Freud's term, uh, you know, go to advance, we need to retreat. Retreat to advance, one of Freud's famous uh, uh, phrases in his essays on uh, psychoanalysis. This is Jung speaking. Through scientific understanding, our world has become dehumanized. Sorry for his sexism, but again, he wrote before feminism. Man feels himself isolated in the cosmos. He's no longer involved in nature and has lost his emotional participation in natural events, which hitherto had a symbolic meaning. Thunder is no longer the voice of a god, nor is lightning his avenging missile. No river contains a spirit. No tree means a man's life. No snake is the embodiment of wisdom. And no mountain still harbors a great demon. Neither do things speak to him, nor can he speak to things like stones, springs, plants, and animals. He no longer has a bush soul, which is an African term from the Kalahari Bushmen, identifying him with a wild animal. His immediate communication with nature is gone forever, and the emotional energy it generated has sunk into the unconscious. Jung said that because he thought that a lot of people who came to him in psychotherapy had dreams where nature was alive, um, dreams where there was an enchantment in nature, and that's why he says it's sunk into the unconscious. We have been that mind that we have never known it, it says. We got rid of it before understanding it. And I think that's an interesting perspective on this. We got rid of that dreaming, mythic mind before understanding it. Now, Annie Dillard seems to be almost quoting from Jung in this marvelous book. Has anyone read Teaching a Stone to Talk? It's, yeah, it's a magnificent novel. She says, it's difficult to undo our own damage and to recall to our presence that which we have asked to leave. Remember St. Boniface and, and chopping down the sacred oak I showed you a picture of? It's hard to desecrate a sacred grove and change your mind. And I think that's what Christianity is in the, is in the, is in the throes of that. It desecrates sacred groves. And now it's like, oh, hang on, we need an ecological conversion all of a sudden. We douse the burning bush, which is a beautiful reference to the, uh, the Moses experience in the Old Testament, and cannot rekindle it. We are lighting matches in vain under every green tree. Did the wind once cry and the hills shout forth praise? Now speech has perished from among the lifeless, lifeless things of earth, and living things say very little to very few. So it's a beautiful novel about this yearning that many of us have, certainly I have, uh, for hoping that we can rekindle the enchantment of nature, which we in the West have spent a great deal of time and energy trying to extinguish. This is Dave Foreman, founder of the American-based Earth, Earth First movement. He said, our problem is a spiritual crisis. The pure, he's talking as an American. The Puritans brought with them a theology that saw the wilderness of North America 
as a haunt of Satan, with savages as his disciples and wild animals as his demons, all of which had to be cleared, defeated, tamed or killed. Opening up to the dark forests became a spiritual mission to flush evil out of hiding. I can almost say exactly the same thing about Central Australia and the clash of cultures there. If we're going to, to survive America, we have to go back. Metaphorically, and I really think that's an important word, metaphorically, not literally, to that pilgrim shore again, let's seek to learn from the land this time round. That's Dave Foreman. Only man's presence can save nature. As the biologist Grant Watson put it, an Australian biologist, our task is to re-enter the dream of nature. Our task is to re-enter the dream of nature. 